KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. That very controversial law that puts very strict restrictions on abortion in Texas, SB 8, has been in effect for a couple of weeks now. We wanted to dig into what we are seeing as a result of this law going into effect and what we could see going forward. For this conversation, we caught up with Rachel Reboucher. She is the interim dean and a professor of law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. Very important conversation. Give a listen. So to start, I think most people listening here are very familiar with it, but just if someone has only kind of heard the headlines, can you give us a quick primer of what this law that went into effect a couple weeks ago in Texas, what it's all about with regards to abortion? Sure. So SB 8 is a law that Texas passed that bans abortion except for uh, medical emergency when a fetal cardiac activity can be detected. That's around six weeks. Um, of pregnancy. And so it's well before viability, which is when a fetus can live outside of the body. And uh, this law is really very different because other states have passed pre-viability abortion bans, and those have been struck down as unconstitutional. There are cases on the books, cases the Supreme Court that has decided uh, that don't allow states to just completely prohibit pre-viability abortion. This law hasn't been challenged and enjoined in the same way because it does not permit the state to enforce it. So Mississippi has a 15-week ban. That's before the Supreme Court right now. That's been enjoined by federal courts as unconstitutional at at a different level of, of the federal appeals process. And it's because that law says the state of Mississippi is going to prosecute abortion providers if they provide abortions past 15 weeks. Well, the Texas law says state officials can't touch it. It's private citizens that are going to enforce the law. So it allows private citizens to sue abortion providers and anyone who aids and abets the abortion provider And that can be giving money, giving a ride, um, the the aids and abets, the provision of abortion, if it's contrary to this law, and allows that citizen to sue for $10,000 for every abortion committed in violation. And so if they can prove that provider or the person helping uh, the abortion take place did so, and it was past six weeks, it was passed when a fetal heartbeat can be detected, they can win $10,000 against the the provider or the person aiding and abetting. And so that's really novel. Um, It puts enforcement of a state law in the private citizen's hands. And what what it did as a procedural matter is when Planned Parenthood and other providers sued to say, hey, wait a second, Supreme Court said you can't ban abortion this early in pregnancy. The Fifth Circuit, a federal appellate court said, well, you know, usually you'd sue the state and you can do that under a legal principle, a legal exception to sovereign immunity. But here, no one's enforced the law. There's no one to sue. Um, so you don't have standing and it doesn't fit into the scheme of how we normally think about judging the constitutionality of these laws before they go into effect. Uh, and so the petitioners asked uh, for an emergency stay, which is asking the Supreme Court 
hey, please stop this law from going into effect while we figure all this out. And the Supreme Court said, sorry, no, it's, you know, this case isn't isn't ready for us to stay, um, to stay it. So it went into effect September 1st, and it's produced all kinds of um, legal battles and uncertainty and confusion in the meantime. And I don't mean to be flippant about this, but how can the highest court in the land look at something that turns the entire state into a possibility of a group of bounty hunters and think it it's a good thing. So this is what people have called the shadow docket of the Supreme court, where a case is not before them yet, but petitioners come and ask for relief that that's an emergency. And in issuing those orders court, the court does not have to give its reason and it doesn't have to tell you who voted to do what it did. And so, but we know because Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer, and Justice Sotomayor um, all wrote dissents. And their dissents basically just said some version of what you said. So Chief Justice Roberts said, hey, shouldn't we just preserve the status quo while we figure this out? This is a really new law. There's a complicated issue here of who gets sued and why and And, you know, this could be applied to all kinds of different areas. Um, And Sotomayor, writing the strongest dissent, said, this is a law that Texas wrote, knew it was unconstitutional, knew it was going to deprive people of their constitutional rights to pre-viability abortion, and then designed it in order to get around court review. This can't be what the Supreme Court lets stand. And so that's, that's one of the reasons the Department of Justice sued in the last couple of weeks uh, to try to get some some injunction to stop the law in federal courts. You mentioned a lot of legal challenges and the uncertainty for both women who want or need abortions and for providers. Has anyone in Texas taken any kind of legal action to fight this law? Um, what you see happening outside of federal intervention are providers suing in state county courts to ask county courts to stop enforcement of the law because providers are so nervous about frivolous lawsuits being filed against them. Um, And Travis County, which is where Austin, the court there said, yeah, we're gonna suspend this law in this county until we can figure out, you know, is it it constitutional? Should it be enforced? Um, But you see clinics closing, you see providers you know, not performing abortions past six weeks because they are they are scared of being sued. It's caused a lot of confusion about what aiding and abetting an abortion means. Um, you might have seen that Uber and Lyft, for instance, uh, knowing that giving a ride to someone could potentially be thought of as aiding and abetting has indemnified its, its drivers against these lawsuits. Um, because the other curious thing about the statute is that you can be sued and someone can win, even if you didn't know you're helping the person get the abortion. <laughs> so it's, you know, that that itself could be unconstitutional, that itself could have a constitutional problem. <laughs> so, you know, I think the threat is what the legislatures wanted. Uh, I think they wanted to, you know, to chill provider activity and, and, make it really difficult to provide abortion generally in the state. I know the, I think as we're talking here, that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear oral arguments uh, on a case out of Mississippi that I think a lot of people had pointed to as 
a direct threat to Roe versus Wade that people knew was in the pipeline and was coming. And that's set for December 1st. I'm just at a loss, and it kind of comes back to the second question I asked you about the, the thinking of the Supreme Court. Knowing that this case was in the pipeline, why would the Supreme Court put kind of its reputation, its legitimacy, everything, and cause all this chaos if they knew this was coming? And if you're a justice that wants to overturn Roe versus Wade, there just seems to be a, a much easier mechanism for that. Am I making it too simple? It's a good question of why not just stay the law while some of the more complicated issues around standing and sovereign immunity and all that, you know, all, all that stuff is figured out. But I think Dobbs, the Mississippi case you mentioned, oral arguments are not going to be until December. And then the court typically um, will decide, you know, decide who's going to write a case, how it's going to go, you know, that the, then there's a lot that happens. And this, the final decision, whatever it is, might not come out until June, maybe later. Uh, and so there is a, a, a lag time here. Um, but I, I think that the Supreme Court has done this recently in another case uh, where it was asked to um, think about whether or not the FDA could impose an in-person pickup requirement on medication abortion in the pandemic when a federal court said it couldn't. And there the Supreme Court intervened and said, no, the district court can't do that. We're gonna suspend that district court judgment while this case is on appeal. So there's a signal here that, uh, you know, the, the court is, has, has a track record now in the shadow docket of permitting states to legislate against abortion, upholding the Fifth Circuit, and being careful about opinions that seek to undo restrictions at the federal level. So in that sense, it's not, it's not so surprising, um, but you raise a good point that if the court overturns Roe v. Wade and Casey, the case that follows Roe and that came up with this viability line in the, in the way that we talk about it now, if the court decides that you know, that's over, there's no constitutional right to abortion, or decides, hey, you know what, pre-viability bans, constitutional, here's a new standard, um, then Texas law doesn't matter really anymore uh, for the sake of banning abortion. Texas could that very day pass a law that bans almost all abortion per the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. So it may become moot uh, in, that, in, in that way. What would be interesting, though, is what courts say about this private enforce, enforcement mechanism as a way to enforce a law that might infringe upon someone's constitutional rights. And so that's what I, that's what I think is really interesting. The Supreme Court letting the law go into effect when you think about, and this is, as I said, a little bit of Justice Roberts' take on it, why not then you know, have a state that can pass a law that says you can't own a gun um, in violation of your Second Amendment rights, um, or you can't, you know, in some ways, is a clear, clear workaround, the right to bear arms, and says, and we're not enforcing it, so you can't sue us, the state, private citizens are going to sue you if they, if they learn that you are, you know, in violation of this gun law. Chief Justice Roberts was kind of nodding towards that. Like, what do we, 
doing here? You know, there, this can cut both ways. It can be a leftist project. It can be a conservative project. It can be, it can, the politics of it could cut left and right. And the, the bigger question is, what does it mean to empower citizens to enforce the law and not the state? What do you think we are going to see? What are going to be the ripple effects of this law going into effect in Texas? I can't imagine something like this. There's not the possibility for unintended consequences kind of going both ways. What do you think are some things we could see or maybe are already starting to see? One, maybe unintended consequences. I think that this, that SB8 has caused such a backlash against Texas and Abbott. I think it's engaged people who normally, maybe abortion rights, not really their issue or not something they're tapped into or think about on a day-to-day basis. But I think when you read, Texas now has a law that allows private citizens to sue for tens of thousands of dollars. (laughs) You know, anyone who gives a ride to a person going to, you know, who's seeking uh, to terminate a pregnancy. I think that just hits a nerve and rightly so it mobilizes people to say, what's happening. And, and it certainly mobilized the Biden administration. And so one consequence is you have now the federal government saying very clearly in the strongest rhetoric possible we will do everything we can to stop Texas from deciding that it can just suspend people's constitutional rights. Um, and so you have the DOJ suing Texas. You have, you know, this, this case, the United States versus Texas is working its way through courts and you have renewed uh, support for uh, federal legislation that would protect abortion rights and would preempt state restrictions. So I think it's a moment where you know, you're really engaging different actors. And one of those actors is really powerful and, you know, is putting its resources, the federal government, on the side of reproductive rights. I think the negative consequences are ones that we probably could expect, which is people are traveling to New Mexico, Oklahoma. Those uh, clinics are flooded with Texas patients people driving a thousand miles, you know, a round trip nonstop because they can't take off work because they can't, you know, the people who are carrying unintended pregnancies or pregnancies that they, they can't afford uh, to term, you're seeing all those real life consequences too. Um, those are not unintended. They're totally, <laughs> there's ones that we totally could expect. Um, but I think the ripple effects of that are, you know, when clinics close, it's really hard for them to reopen. With the uncertainty that this law produces, it the ripple effects of what abortion is legal and where, that's, that's a difficult conversation to start to change as this law flicker, you know, might flicker on and off in enforceability. So I think it's going to let, it's going to leave a wake of confusion and um, it's going to be people, it's going to be people who are bearing the cost. It's going to be patients bear that cost. We're going to hear awful stories, I'm sure, coming out of Texas of women dying or, you know, families being put into incredible financial debt. And because there's very little talk of the why people, why women have abortions. It's all talk just in these cut and dry, you know, no 
idea to the human thing. How much of an effect do you think it's going to have when inevitably we start to hear some of these stories that I can almost guarantee are going to be heartbreaking slash enraging? How could that change kind of how this is looked at even legally or would it have any effect you think? I think it does. I think it has effect, but I, I'm a person who believes that people, even if you are uncomfortable with abortion, which a lot of people are, you're also uncomfortable with cruelty. (laughs) I think that there is a message there that, you know, as these stories come out about what are the lived experiences of the law, the, the reality sets in that three fourths of abortion patients are living below the federal poverty level or just above it. They are defined as low income or poor in this country, which is living on not a lot of money at all. Um, Most of them already have children. The majority already have children. The majority of abortion patients are people of color. And so when you think about the population that is bearing the costs of this law, there are already people who are who are struggling to make ends meet. And when you interview patients seeking abortion, which this great study I, I commend to anybody called the Turnaway Study, uh, run by a uh, group called Answer that's based at the University of San Francisco, California, interviewed thousands of patients who had just timed out of an abortion. They, their pregnancies were a little too late uh, in the state in order to receive a terminated pregnancy. The chief reason that people seek abortion, this study found, is because they cannot afford typically another child. Um, And when they followed up with those patients five years later, those who timed out of abortion and had children, they had much higher medical debt, they had much higher credit card debt, they had uh, bankruptcies, um, they had worse health, they had higher stress levels, and they had poor child outcomes for the children they were raising. And so there are these ripple effects that matter uh, because, you know, just as you said, this is not just an abstract choice. There's gonna be a person (laughs) who needs food, clothing, shelter, and the state could go a long way to helping ensure that people can raise those children, can have children, can have the children they want. Uh, and raise them with enough resources to thrive. What do you think we're going to see? Because I remember when this law went into effect, you heard stories of, I don't remember what the number was, but several other states already had laws like this ready to go. They were waiting to see what happened in Texas. If we do see other states put similar, if not kind of the same laws, and how does that change the calculus of, of how courts and all look at it? Or does it not change it at all? Do you think the DOJ would get involved in every state or train all its fire on Texas, kind of where it started and try to take care of it that way? How does all that work? I think it depends. I think it depends on what happens. You know, if you have a state pass a law, you have, you know, Ohio pass a similar law with the private enforcement mechanism. It's, it, it could be that you have a district court that does what the federal district court in Texas did and say, I'm enjoining this law until we figure out these issues of enforcement and constitutionality. Um, and it could be that you have the Sixth Circuit, like the Fifth Circuit, say, no. And this was this was also a little 
noteworthy. The Fifth Circuit basically said, district court, there is no standing here. So we we basically clear out your decision um, and we wait for a suit that actually is uh, ready for a federal court to hear. The Sixth Circuit could say that. It's pretty extraordinary to do that, I think. Or the Sixth Circuit or another federal appellate court could say, we suspend this law until we figure out the issues. I mean, really what we're talking about here is federal courts who would typically say, before this goes into effect, let's figure out if it should go into effect. The Fifth Circuit didn't allow that to happen, but another court could. And then you have a circuit split, and then it's more ready for the Supreme Court to hear. Just because it took effect in Texas doesn't necessarily mean it would have the same trajectory in other states. And what do you think, and I don't know, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but if you and I talk a year from now, what do you think this landscape looks like of abortion rights, given what we've just talked about with Texas, given the case that they're going to start hearing in December, given kind of the backlash against it? What do you think it looks like? Yeah, if I had to look into a magic ball. So I think the fact that the court is hearing the Dobbs case, the Mississippi case that we talked about earlier, means that it's ready to announce a new standard for abortion rights review or to abandon constitutional rights to abortion generally. So I think a year from now, Dobbs is decided and total conjecture, but it's either the case that a lot of laws that apply before viability are now constitutional so you have about half the states that pass all the laws they can uh, that, that would limit or ban abortion. Um, or states are, have a blank check to criminalize abortion with very few exceptions uh, because Roe and Casey have been overturned. I think it's very likely that we are in one of those two scenarios, but they, they mean basically the same thing. Greater latitude for states to ban early abortion or to severely limit it. At the same time, I think you see we might be a year from now in a world where um, the federal government is uh, has, you know, the FDA, for instance, has lifted federal restrictions on medication abortion. So there's probably debate about in restrictive states, can can they more heavily regulate medication abortion than the FDA? You're going to find yourself, I think, in a world that we live in now, frankly, which is about half states having scarce abortion services where abortion is very hard to come by because of that scarcity and half the states where there's not. Uh, there's not the same restrictions. There are not the same um, access limitations. So I think you'll, we'll be living in a country that as we are now, frankly, is pretty, have, is pretty divided when it comes to access questions. You know, I think medication abortion, which is a two drug regimen that you take 24 hours, 48 hours, and you take it up until about 10, 11 weeks. You know, I think that we've seen the rise of virtual clinics that offer telehealth for abortion. Um, I think that it might be possible that the FDA allows providers to prescribe and then uh, allow pharmacies to dispense medication abortion. And so the access question might look very different as well in that you start to have abortion care that's not wedded to a physical space. And that will change the kind of dynamics and questions about access. So I think in the, in the wake of, of a case that overturns Roe, or Ka- Roe and Casey, 
I think you'll see networks come, you know, grow that provide transportation and funding for travel and, and the like. So the bottom line, abortion is not going to go anywhere. It's just that how, how states are policed by the court and what are the constitutional standards might dramatically change. And with it, some of the map of what abortion access looks like, but you know, over the long term, we'll have to wait and see how that how that starts to look different. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.